1: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise: Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm at class with my great friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, we're talking about Entrepreneur Heaven. Well, Ron, this is going to be an interesting show. I, I have to tell you the origins of this. Entrepreneur Heaven. I I recall the first time I saw you present that you cued cued a deck up that you had with some some music playing in the background of all of these quotes from these famous entrepreneurs. And might I tell you that it lasted forever? It was like what is it? Like seven or eight minutes long?
2: Oh no, I think you're thinking of the other one we do on the Who. This one lasted for about three minutes.
1: Oh, okay.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> only, but I know. I know. Only, yeah,
1: it just goes on. I'm like, go, <laughs> because there are so many great entrepreneurs who have who are no longer with us. Uh, They're great entrepreneurs who are with us too. But I think it's kind of fun to talk about some of the lessons from entrepreneurs gone gone by. And we've got four of them today that are that are that are clearly there. If there's a there's an entrepreneur heaven, these these four guys guys are definitely there.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, that that uh, that deck you're talking about, Ed, that I use, and I still use it sometimes because it's pretty impactful, is actually kind of grew out of an idea for a book that I would still like to write on on entrepreneur heaven. Um, you know, wisdom is timeless if, if it's wisdom, if it's true wisdom. And I think that some of these guys that we're going to profile, and and women, there's some women in here too, um, over the course of you know if if we do if we turn this into a series, they have a lot of wisdom to share it 's just unbelievable when you go back and and look at what they did and how they did it uh, and then read how they you know talked about it there's just there 's just tons of lessons here that we can learn so i, I don 't know if we can do these four guys justice in you know like one segment each today on the show, but we 'll give it our best shot.
1: We'll give it a shot. And we've got coming up today, by the way, uh, Edison, Ford, Disney, and Marriott in that order. And lead us off, Ron. So Thomas Edison, crazy guy, as he holds the records for the most number of patents ever.
2: Yeah. I, I, you know, one of my favorite, and this guy is just, uh, he was a character. Um, but one of my favorite things about him is he had a sign in his laboratory that said, hell there ain't no rules around here. We're trying to accomplish something. <laughs> <laughs> but you're yeah. right. He does, he does hold the world's record on patents, 1093, and uh, got the first one at age 21. And, of course, he was deaf. Which mm-hmm. is really interesting because he invented the, you know, the, the phonograph and <laughs> he improved yeah. the motion picture camera and, the, and obviously the electric light. But uh, apparently when he was a boy, he contracted scarlet fever and they say that might have contributed to his deafness. Mm-hmm. So pretty interesting.
1: Right. Now, he wasn't completely deaf, right? He, he could hear, I think, a little bit.
2: Yeah, I think it was more in one year, if I remember right. But yeah, he could hear a little bit. But when they asked him, why doesn't he wear hearing aids? He says, well, why would I want to listen to all the crap in the world? (laughs) He had some very interesting beliefs, but uh, he is certainly a prolific uh, inventor. And and he did think of himself um, as an inventor, not a scientific person. He didn't have much use for theory.
1: No, no. In fact, what, one of the things I, I know about him is, is, you know, he was a big DC current guy, right? Correct. And, and the, the, the competing current was alternating currency, and there was a big battle for that. And I, there's even some stuff about the electric chair. I don't know if we'll get into that, but pretty, pretty interesting. The, the deal was, though, is that direct current would only be supported. Like the first neighborhood to be lighted was a neighborhood in lower Manhattan, and it was a one square mile by one square mile. And the deal was is that they had to, you know, build a generator to do this in that one square mile. And there was, you know, tremendous amount of work that has to go in to be able to build this facility and obviously get the, the lines out to every everybody. But the problem was is if you use DC, at least at the time, it may the technology may have changed. But the only way that they knew how to do this was basically to build a power plant every mile. hmm And it was a major problem. But one of the reasons why Edison backed the DC current so much is that he, he could figure it out because he wasn't scientific, as you said. He didn't really have a formal, formally trained background in a lot of this stuff. So I think the math and the concepts that were involved in having to figure out what would be involved for AC current and, and what we now know as the grid were, were honestly beyond him conceptually.
2: Right, right, yeah, I do remember reading that. Um, yeah, that's absolutely true. And I know the guy that he was fighting with, uh, who was the founder of uh, what was it? Um, Westinghouse. Westinghouse. Yeah, yeah. Um, they they were in a pretty fierce battle about which one of those was going to dominate AC or DC.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Well, to the point was, I think it was it, it was it was brought up that the that the uh, the uh, electric chair wor- functioned on DC current, and then. Right. <laughs> yeah it's one of the ways that westinghouse kind of stuck it to edison oh yeah okay it's good for killing people
2: right right (laughs) and and you know the other thing interesting about him he he improved the motion picture camera and one of his loves was silent films and he said probably because i'm (laughs) deaf he said you know i could really appreciate the acting and he he didn't think that um talking films would supplant films he's kind of got the same line that that famous hollywood studio mogul has that the public doesn't want to hear talking movies yeah. you know who said that who who the hell wants to hear actors speak you know one of the <laughs> hollywood moguls said that well edison kind of said the same thing and he didn't think that talking films would ever supplant the silent movie and the other thing that was really interesting about him Ed, is he thought that films would completely supplant books in schools. Mm. Uh, He he really didn't think there would be a need for books in schools anymore if you could just, you know, have the kids watch a movie and and educate them that way. He thought you'd hold their interest longer and, you know, it it would be a complete substitute for books. So (laughs) he he had some very interesting views that, of course, turned out to be wrong.
1: Well, yeah, but, but so much also turned out to be right. And, and look, we'll talk a lot about this when we're talking about these guys as uh, entrepreneurs are, in a way, happy failures, right? You know, it's, it, they, they have to be willing to subject themselves to criticism and also endless experimentation. I, I forget what the number is. You probably have it on the tip of your tongue, but how many, how many different types of filaments did, did he use before he, he settled on the right one for the light bulb?
2: Yeah, yeah, it was, it was in the hundreds, if not the low thousands, I think, yeah. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and the quote is some, something like, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't fail whatever t- thousands of times,
2: I I got it right in the end, you know? <laughs> right, right, I just found out 999 things that didn't work or something. Didn't like work, that. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he did have a, a concept, Ed, for cement homes, like building a complete home out of cement all the way around. He thought, you know, hey, there'd be no repairs. You you wouldn't need fire insurance, and and it failed miserably, but (laughs) that was definitely one of his visions.
1: (laughs) Zero aesthetic pull to the cement home.
2: (laughs) He also worked with uh Henry Ford. Of course, we're good friends, and I don't know if you've ever seen it, but in Fort Myers, Florida, they have their vacation homes and they're kind of side by side and they're kind of museums now and and they were they were really good friends. But he teamed up with Henry Ford and Harvey Firestone uh mm-hmm. to try and find a domestic source of rubber because one of the things that you know Ford didn't like was he wanted to be totally vertically vertically and horizontally integrated. And Edison looked at a domestic source of rubber as a way to save farmers in the U.S., you know, like the cotton farmers in the South uh, weren't uh, doing very well. So he thought right. if we could get them to do a domestic source of rubber, and they worked on that for quite a long time. And, of course, it it failed, too. But uh, that was a pretty interesting thing, too.
1: Well, you know, it was interesting. You mentioned his collaboration with Ford. And I know that one of the things that, that they collaborated on was the uh, the electric car. And... It, the, uh, obviously, Edison was was putting together the battery for that, and while it it never really took off in terms of the fill, fulfilling the dream of the electric car, you know, same problem we have today. There was a, a problem with charging and and short range. Although that that is clearly getting better and better today, but the the issue uh, was is that that. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry, the, the battery was still one of the most successful inventions that he ever came up with in terms of to market and uh, amount of money that he made on it. It wasn't, wasn't purely used for cars, but the, the cell, that, that cell that they used was the number one seller, I think, of all time for, for his company.
2: Yeah, in fact, there's a guy he teamed up with the Bailey Electric Vehicle. I forget the Bailey's first name, but he mm. made this electric vehicle, and you can see the battery, you know, by the Edison Battery Company sitting in there. In fact, and I think in Fort Myers because I I did take a tour of that. I think they got a battery into one of Ford's cars and, and experimented with it that, with that way too. But he mm-hmm. would he was a big believer in batteries. He thought that they would definitely uh, displace oil. Uh, for engine use you know in the future
1: yep uh, what, he, what he clearly didn 't see was the, the the amount of oil that was available and and the, the how cheap the production got, and that batteries, for whatever reason, and i don 't understand this technically have have not really changed all that much in terms of cost. From a technical perspective, we've gotten them smaller, but they're still relatively similar in price to whatever power that they can produce. And, and of course, the gasoline engine is – powered engine completely overwhelms it in terms of power and range.
2: Right. And, and, you know, the other thing I found absolutely fascinating, Ed, was he was – he gave an interview to a, a p- publication back in 1889, and he said – I'm at work on an invention which will enable a man in Wall Street not only to telephone a friend in Central Park, but to actually see that friend while speaking to him. Of course, it's ridiculous to talk about seeing between New York and Paris, the rotundity of the earth, if nothing else, would render that impossible. But here's a guy who envisioned Skype or (laughs) the conference call back in 1889
1: amazing amazing stuff well let's talk a little <laughs> bit about him him as as just a person we only got about 2 minutes left here before our first First break, and not his invention. He, a really interesting guy in his belief system. He 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 is accused of being, or was at the time, accused of being an an atheist. But he actually said, no, no, no. I definitely believe in God, but he 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 did did believe more like Thomas Paine in a a greater consciousness of, if you will, not necessarily a, a deity of the theologians correct
2: yeah in fact he said i do believe in god because nature and science both affirm his existence if if he were alive today i, I think you'd have to call him an intelligence design believer he believed mm. he believed in id could
1: be yeah yeah but uh, again not with not with all of the theology stuff involved so a believer in the i guess the spiritual but not necessarily religious
2: well, Contents. he believed just because of the way the universe was structured that that somebody of intelligence had to have done this. <laughs> the,
1: watch, the Watchmaker.
2: <laughs> yeah, he believed in the supreme intelligence that put all this together because they just didn't believe that it happened randomly. So, no, he was not. He was not an atheist.
1: Right. And not, su- not surprisingly, big big believer in progressivism, you know, education, women's rights, pro- prohibition, um, a, lot, a, lot of the, a lot of the stuff that came out in that era was a, was a big proponent of those things. And again, it's, it, it's this, this idea. I don't think people realize today how ubiquitous the idea of, of socialism and progressivism was in, in the early 1900s in this country.
2: Absolutely, but you know he didn't like regulations on business, and he was anti-union, and he didn't like welfare, and and either did our ne- our topic uh, next segment, which is Henry Ford, but uh, yeah, he had some very interesting views, and he was a big believer in tariffs. He thought that domestic uh, industry had to be protected from foreign competition, so he was a big big believer. In fact, I think he said somewhere that the Smoot-Harley Tariff Act would be a great thing for the country. And, of course, economists believe it did nothing but prolong the Depression. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Well, first, folks, we have to take our first break. So uh, we're going to uh, remind you that you can follow the show at Verisage.com slash TSOE. And if you'd like to email Ed or myself, you can do so at TSOE at com. We'd also like to remind you that our Facebook page is up, so you can come and like us there at Facebook.com slash AskTSOE. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results.
3: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us.
0: Have you ever read a book that changed your life? The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network.
3: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
2: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here talking about entrepreneur heaven, and we're looking at four of the greats from history, uh, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Walt Disney, and J.W. Marriott. And we discussed uh, Edison in the first segment. And... Of course, uh, Ed, Henry Ford and Edison were were really good friends and very tight. And when Edison passed away, Ford said, it might be said that we live in the age of Edison, in many ways, the greatest man since the world began. (laughs) Very, very true. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So definitely a lot of uh, mutual admiration between those two. Um, But then looking at Henry Ford... Is another, just another absolute character. I mean, this guy has always kind of fascinated me. I've, I've read a couple of biographies on him, and I've also read his autobiography, My Life and Work. And uh, there, there's just so much to talk about with Henry Ford.
1: The, you know the thing that always pops to my mind when I think about Henry Ford, and this is kind of weird, I know, but is that, it, and I don't know why this stuck with me, but I, when I read Brave New World in in uh, high school, mm-hmm. right, Huck, Huxley uses uses it, it has changed the year structure to AF, mm-hmm. right, anno Ford. <laughs> I don't even remember that instead of anno domini, you know, it, it's and they changed the 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 cross of the to a capital T. <laughs> for, the, for the Model T. <laughs> so right. it, 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 here's here's an example of a guy you know even 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 when they're trying to slam him that's that's a, that's a that's some respect to think that we would change the year system after the, after the guy.
2: <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, there's no doubt this guy changed the landscape of, of the country. I mean, and and another person who really idolized Henry Ford was Steve Jobs. Oh, yeah. He, yeah, he really uh, he really admired his accomplishments. Um, but one of the things that you always pick up on Ford, of course, you know, is, is Ford uh, helped our enemies, you know, build things. And, in fact, he was awarded the Grand Cross of the German Eagle, uh, which is, was the highest honor in the Nazi party in July of 1938. Now, I, I've, I've read some scholarly stuff on this, and the scholars say that uh, he never – he never knew adolf hitler he never met him personally and you'll read all sorts of stuff that he did and all that but apparently it's not true but there's no doubt that the guy was anti-semitic and that just needs to be set up front i mean he he took over the dearborn independent in 1919 Mm -hmm. and it it just ran all sorts of anti-semitic articles and and uh, Ford, even though his architect that, that built like his home and his some of his plants mm-hmm. was a, a Jew, and even though he lived next to a rabbi and was really good friends, he had some very anti-Semitic opinions. And even his his uh, daughter and his his wife, I think, kind of distanced themselves from the Dearborn <laughs> Independent after he kind of took it over and started running these very controversial articles. So that is definitely kind of a dark side. Of him, but uh, other than that, he he did he did some really great stuff with the automobile, obviously, and revolutionizing some management practices.
1: Well, sure, and 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 I think that's 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 one thing. I, you know, I ask a. A question of a lot of people when I conduct, do podcasting, and even interviews, if I've been interviewing someone from a job, one of my favorite questions is, uh, do you have any, or, or, or not do you, but who is a hero of yours and why are they a hero? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's interesting how many times people say to me, I don't have any heroes, I just have people that I greatly admire. And I'm like, well, isn't that the definition of a hero? And why I bring this story up is because I think that's just by way of clarification – we do not think that these four individuals are, are perfect and uh, d- deserving to be of sainthood in any kind of church,
2: <laughs> right? Yeah, I know. It, and, and, the, and nor did they. <laughs>
1: right, exactly, exactly. But, but, just, but, but from, from, from the idea of, of business as creating value and wealth for individual people, in addition to creating value and wealth for themselves, man, what did Henry Ford do for society, in 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 changing the American system to be, to be one where the automobile still reigns supreme to this day.
2: Right. It, it, it's the ultimate expression of uh, at Deirdre McCloskey's line, you know, market-tested supply and innovation. Right. I mean, these were just massive, massive innovators that brought us new products and services that literally changed how we live. Mm-hmm and you know the other thing that ford uh did was you know of course he he he's pretty well known for the $5 a day pay and there is a there's an interesting uh asterisk to that but he also innovated the 8-hour workday and the 5-day work week he believed that uh you know you needed a day of rest and you needed a day of of being with the family and things like that so he he instituted the 5-day work week um and profit sharing was mm-hmm. Henry Ford was one of the first to do that. Now, just on the $5 a day, his efficiency experts, his Mm -hmm. his Taylorites, and they were all over his factories. He was a big Taylor disciple. They made it so difficult. They set the quota so high that very few people earned At five dollars per day, the average was actually something like two (laughs) thirty-four. Right. So that that was kind of interesting, which was
1: still pretty good for the time.
2: It was. It was. And and uh, but Ford did have a reputation as as some of the the biggest sweatshops out out of the automobile companies. So
1: well, and he was very anti-union, very anti-union. But then, but then again, you know, eight-hour, five-hour work week. Once again, ahead of his time in terms of putting that into place.
2: Yep, absolutely. He also had created a sociological department uh, to monitor his employees' behavior when they were on and off the clock. Didn't think they should drink, gamble, you know, (laughs) do all these other bad things. And he he was a real Puritan in some of his views. In fact, you know, one of the things that I found fascinating studying uh, him was he didn't believe in debt. He didn't believe family should go into debt, even to buy his car. Um, and he was very reluctant to start a financing company. Now, the conventional wisdom is that he got his butt kicked by General Motors because General Motors offered other colors other than black, mm-hmm. right? But that's not why General Motors kicked his butt. General Motors kicked his butt because in 1919, they established GMAC, which was the financing arm for cars. And Henry Ford refused to do it because he didn't think you should go into debt to buy his product. Mm. And so he didn't start the Ford Motor Credit Company until something like 1927, giving GM eight years to just trounce him in the marketplace. And that's what really kicked his butt.
1: Yeah, all around the, the the financing very very yep. interesting that he refused to to, to do that it didn't and GMAC just a quick side note here that that is now Ally Bank right so it's
2: still it, around yes <laughs> yeah in fact at, you know one point before the the financial bust and I haven't looked at it since but you know GMAC made more money financing cars than GM did building them
1: oh yeah no well no far question.
2: More, far more profitable.
1: Yeah, and, well, we we've had this line before. You know, General General Motors. If you look at the balance sheet, is basically a a, a a
2: a pension fund that happens to make cars. And and you know the you know the reason why the Model T was painted black because it dried faster. Black paint dries faster. <laughs> oh, the really? Uh, yeah. So
1: I did not uh, know that one. That's funny. <laughs>
2: You know, when, yeah. uh, when that when the sales of that started tanking, and and he started to you know figure it out, and then start finally working on the Model A, you know the the, the next uh, generation. He said uh, he was asked about the Model T's drooping sales, and he said the only thing wrong with that car was that the people stopped buying it. <laughs> you know, he was, he was kind of bitter about it. <laughs> He also cut out advertising for a while in the mid twenties, and that didn't help either. He he thought advertising was a complete waste. He didn't believe in it, and so just uh you know hat tip to Tim Williams and Rory Sutherland. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the the ultimate uh, you know values only in things that are tangible uh, yeah. rather than the marketing is is obviously not true.
1: Yes. Yeah, so meanwhile, you know Chrysler's building the the Chrysler Building in New York as a model of architecture.
2: Right. So. It, it is interesting though. When he came out with the Model A in 1927, he offered it in four colors, it, and no black, by the way. Huh. <laughs> and, and for a while, it did outsell uh, Chevys at that time. Uh, up and through up up till like 1929 or something. So I found that kind of interesting too. But uh, uh, eventually, General Motors completely overtook them. So,
1: yeah, interesting. Yeah, well, you know, and so let's let's talk about him. You know, politically about what what it was that he believed. Now, unlike Edison, who had would you say over a thousand patents, Ford wanted
2: to get rid of the Patent Office. He he, yeah, he thought there was you waste of time and money. He did. He did. In fact, he he said, you know, if I yeah, uh, in fact, somebody, he said, if you look at the, the automobile, he said, you know, some piano tuner had patented my idea back in the 30s, the 1830s or something. And he said the only thing that a patent did was advertise to the world that you've got this technology. You're better off just putting it in place and manufacturing it. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't, uh, he, he actually thought that patents killed competition, mm-hmm. which was really fascinating. He also was a big believer in prohibition. Again, he had this Puritan streak about him. You know, he, he thought jazz music was degenerate and all of this kind of thing. But he, he really did believe that the, his factories would have to close if if we didn't have prohibition. So he was a big supporter of that. And yeah. he wasn't an atheist. He 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 wasn't an atheist. He did he he was a believer, but he also Episcopalian, re- I think. Yeah, he was he was raised an Episcopalian, and and he uh, but he got into reincarnation. In his in his twenties, I think he read a book or something that heavily influenced him about reincarnation. So he got into that. But he had many smart things to say about profit, you know, that you can't run a business solely for profit. You have to have a purpose. It it sounds very much like Simon Sinek, you know, his TED talk start with why. I, I think Henry Ford would totally uh totally agree with that.
1: Sure, and John Mackey from Whole Foods, right? The conscious capitalism idea, and the idea that profit is like blood in a human system. It's it's not your purpose for getting up every day. You don't think I got to think red blood cell production. You, you, you think I've got to you know be what whoever I am, uh, and, but you got to produce blood cells, other, otherwise you die. Same thing with profit, right? Profit is what's the darker line price we pay for tomorrow. Right, right. And you but but he's but he's really saw profit as as. Like we do, because when we 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 often talk about this with with the when we do live presentations, that when we say profit, we're not just exclusively talking about the profit inside the the company that you're working with. It you're you're we also believe it's the profit that's going to be happening outside the the company as well. So the customer share of the profit.
2: Right. And in fact, he, he says something very close to that uh, from a New York Times article. He said, profits are merely what we think we work for, but the real profit is not what the promoters get. He meant the seller's. But what the country gets, in other words, what the customer gets. And the other thing he understood, Ed, believe it or not, he understood price-led costing. He understood value pricing because he said, you know, what business ever started with the manufacturer and ended with the consumer? He said, where does the money come from? <laughs> from the consumer. And so he thought success in manufacture is based solely upon making things that the consumer could afford. In other words, value drives price and price drives cost. He One of the the most profound things I think I've read from Henry Ford was he said, "We don't know what a cost should be." Really. So he to- he totally believed in constricting his engineers with the price in order to get the costs down by already having the price of the product in mind, and he and he did that relentlessly. And of course, his goal, of course, was to drive down the price so he could put a car in every garage. But it worked, and and we still preach this the same flow today and Henry Ford understood it.
1: Yep, absolutely. Well we're up against our next break, Ron, so we are going to but as a reminder, you can email us at TSOE at Verisage.com. Of course we do have the the our now famous Google I'm sorry Facebook page, The Soul of Enterprise, so please uh, visit that at facebook.com slash ask, T-S-O-E and I'd love for you to buy a copy of the book at Amazon, just search The Soul of Enterprise, you can find it there as well, but right now we're going to hear from our friend Peter Wolf and Azamba.
0: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from
1: the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
0: What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers
2: are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find
0: out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
3: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V E R A -S S A G E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Next
1: up on our list, Ron, is a favorite of both of ours, a fellow by the name of Walt, Walt Disney. And by one estimate, 1966, which is the year of, of Walt Disney's death, and my, my birth, by the way, I'm honored to say that I mm. lived uh, a, lived for uh, seven, let's see, 30, 45 days. <laughs> <laughs> the overlap between me and Walt is Three 45 Walt. days. <laughs> uh, and it, that that 240 million people had seen a Disney movie a weekly audience of 100 million watched a disney's television show the wonderful world of disney and i remember that as a, as a kid still being on 80 million had read a disney book 50 million listened Jeez. to disney records including me by the way cuz i remember having records mm. as, about mm. with, with disney and uh, chim chimney was was sure. on the record i can distinctly remember it 80 million had bought disney merchandise this is in 1966 66? folks yeah 66 150 million had read a disney comic strip 80 million had seen a Disney educational film, and 7 million had visited Disneyland in California. And Disney World was not open.
2: (laughs) <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, that didn't open until 71. Yeah, wow. That's just absolutely fascinating. You know, one of the great things about Walt Disney is his daughter, um, uh, Diane Miller, I believe, uh, lived in Northern California, and she just passed away a couple years ago. And she, in fact, she passed away, at I think, right before that movie came out, Saving Mr. Banks.
1: Oh, yeah, great movie.
2: Yeah, it really was. And it was dedicated to her because I think she had passed away before it hit the theaters. But she established the Walt Disney Family Museum, and it's in Park Presidio in San Francisco Hmm. because apparently Walt really loved it up here in Northern California, and he really loved the Golden Gate and San Francisco and all that. So they decided to put the Family Museum there. And I've had the pleasure of taking many Disney fans there. I think I've been there about six times. And it is just the most amazing place. I mean, for one thing, this man was awarded over 900 awards from around the world for artistic service. I mean, all of his Oscars, including the one with the seven little Oscars, you know, for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, <laughs> his Presidential Medal of Freedom. They're all in this museum. And this museum is not a Disney commercial. This is the story of his life put together by his family. So you see artifacts and things that, you know, you wouldn't see like in a corporate museum. Mm -hmm. And it is just really fascinating, folks. If you ever get the chance, if you're ever in San Francisco, definitely make the Walt Disney Family Museum part of your itinerary. It is just absolutely fascinating.
1: Wow, cool. I have gotta get get out there next time I'm out there, Ron, take a look at that. That that is fantastic. And of course, um both of us have been to Disney parks. Have you been to Disney World? I know you've been to Disneyland. Yes. Yes, but several times. Yes. World, world as well. And you went to Disney University. Was that in in Disney World?
2: It, it was. It was in Disney World back when it was still kind of open to the public. Uh, I think I attended it in 1997. And in fact, I wrote a series of articles, a three part series on earning my mouse ears, and mm-hmm. it was a customer loyalty uh, course. And it had uh, students from around the world, all different types of industry, uh, you know, including not for profits. And Ed, I always say this, but it's absolutely true. It was without a doubt the best education I've ever gotten. Wow. I mean, it it was just absolutely great. And what was really neat about it is, of course, you're submerged in Disney and they control the entire experience. And so every night you'd get homework and they'd send you into the parks and they'd make you work on an assignment. And, you know, you're still having fun, but you're 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 learning, too. And they took you behind the scenes to things that you would never get to see as, you know, just a normal guest. And it was just a fantastic. Capital G Guest. (laughs) yeah (laughs) and and on the show notes i will post this three-part series because uh it was uh, some people tell me my dad tells me it's the best thing i've ever written but it was actually um it got just tons of orders for reprints from like the girl scouts and the boy scouts of america just thousands of reprints went out of this series so I'll, i'll definitely post that up
1: well, yeah, I have read them, but it'd be good to have them up there and reread them. It's been a while since I looked at it, but and I remember some of the great stories that you told. I mean, you got a chance to go underneath, right, underneath Walt Disney World?
2: Yeah, some of the tunnels and, and, and uh, talk to some of the cast members down there who, like, work in costume or whatever. And it, it's really funny. You learn that Mickey Mouse is a teamster. <laughs> you, know, you know those guys are all unionized, and uh, <laughs> to, to work in those—can you imagine working in those suits in August in Florida? No, Ugh.
1: no. So. I absolutely cannot imagine that. I, I, I admit I have had the opportunity to wear a costume like that at an event, and it was not a pleasant experience. I just—I'm just—and it was not very long either.
2: Right. Like, Apparently, they don't keep them out there very long because of that reason. But yeah, I, c- I can just imagine how terrible that must be.
1: <laughs> well, and you want to talk about just experience and setting the expectations and all that. I mean, I I I've told the story a number of times. It was a, a year ago, March. So uh, just to, to, that myself and my family visited the Disneyland theme park, and this was this was was maybe not the hype, but but coming off the height of the Frozen craze, the Elsa and Anna deal, mm-hmm, right? Yep. And my six-year-old, five, five at the time, you know, we we stood online for three and a half hours oh. to meet Elsa or Anna because you didn't know because the, the way that they were rotating it around. And I want to tell you that this kid <laughs> at five was amazing, be, that, that, that's how riveted they are, that, 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 that they are so focused on the, this character that it, she didn't complain. It was not super hot, but it was warm. We we're standing out in the sun because this was a makeshift area. They, they had cordoned off a, a, an area of a restaurant to do this. Right. Mm-hmm. Because they, there was there was, you know, this is this is the, the Frozen is, is new from mm-hmm. in Disney t- years. Right? right. So they right. don't have stuff ready for this. Sure. And and they, they You know, they just made it work. And, you know, there were people come come around on the line and let us know how long we had to go. And she made a, 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 a friend of the girl a line ahead of her. And they talked Elsa and Anna for three hours together. <laughs> just absolutely amazing that they're able to uh, create such wonderful characters.
2: And, and isn't it interesting that I, I think I point this out in one of the articles? Is is why is it that we can stand in line at Disney for an hour or two or three, like you did, yeah. um, with with no problem? But if I'm in line for three minutes at the post office, I'm going nuts.
1: A couple of things and right, come ju- jump right to mind. Well, first of all, there's a lot, lot more to look at at Disneyland than at the <laughs> yes. post office, right? You know, you can only see the most wanted x number of times. But just right out of the get go, I mean, the biggest thing about this is they they were setting the expectations of how long this was going to be from the moment you got online. It was even though this was a makeshift line. Right, they were go- they were going to try to figure out a way to keep you informed as to what's going on, and you could make that decision as to whether you or not you wanted to get online. And of course, when they have regular lines, you know, Pirates of the Pirates of the Caribbean, etc., you're going through stuff. There's stuff to look at. You know, they they might have a character or two that pops pops in. Right, so they they make standing in line an experience.
2: Right. Right. And the other thing I, there's so much with Disney we could talk about but one of the stories I absolutely love and it applies both to Disneyland and Disney World is in the 1950s when he was searching for the location for Disneyland which he got some help from a bunch of economists at Stanford Research Institute that helped him pick the location but he he bought these orange groves down in Anaheim and he paid 4 grand an acre Ed and um 4 years later it was assessed at, it was valued at 20000 per acre. And Art Linkletter, who was a great friend of Walt, in fact, when Walt opened Disneyland, Art Linkletter was one of the hosts that they ran on TV, mm-hmm. along, yep. I might add, with Ronald Reagan.
1: Yep, yep, yep.
2: <laughs> and Linkletter, when Walt took him out to show him the location, which is just a bunch of orange groves at the time, and, and Walt was trying to get Linkletter to invest, he said, oh, but. But art you'll be able to sell the land after and you know uh, and make a huge killing and art said, no walt you're you're nuts, He thought just like everybody else that this was going to be a big bust for mm-hmm. disney, and Link Letter writes in one story that I figured out that day that that little walk with Walt cost me about three million dollars per step because I didn't <laughs> invest. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and just to back it up, it was even better in Walt Disney World because, of course, that was swampland, uh-huh. and he ended up buying twenty seven thousand four hundred acres out there for Disney World for about five million dollars. Now it's about one hundred eighty five bucks an acre, uh-huh. and the last time I looked, and I haven't looked, I haven't looked recently, but I think I looked about ten years ago, the value of an acre inside of Walt Disney World was over two million dollars. Uh-huh. So. One of the things I think this proves better than anything, you know, that old realtor maxim, locates, yeah, oh yeah. location, location, Walt completely blew that apart because he did it with human capital. Yep. He, yep. he put imagination in, and that trumped location.
1: Yep. Supply creates demand.
2: Yep. And yep. and it's it's intellectual capital that matters. It's the knowledge economy. The
1: knowledge. Yeah, Absolutely. Interesting stuff. Yeah. You know, Walt uh, was not without his accusers, though. He also accused of anti-Semitism and, and uh, racism. Of course, I think in this case, it's completely unfounded. I mean, I, I think we have no no appreciation for Zeitgeist at all. So yeah. you know, if, if Walt makes the Song of the South or there's, Mickey, there's a Mickey Mouse cartoon with Mickey Mouse in blackface, Right. Uh, look, th- th- this w- this was an acceptable practice to to a certain degree at the time that even African Americans at the time would not have been repulsed by.
2: Yep, you know his family museum deals with this head on. They don't they don't shy away from controversy, including his testimony in front of the an American Committee of the House. Um, and, and other, you know, like the big union strike that he had that shut down the studio, uh, cause he, he was an anti-communist, but he, um, he was an anti-Semitic. I mean, most, a lot of his animators, a lot of some of the most important people that worked for him <laughs> were Jewish. And when you, when you're walking around the family museum, he's got all these awards from Jewish synagogues and Jewish organizations. I mean, it, it's just, a, it's really a cheap shot, I think, um, at his legacy to, to call him an anti-Semitic. Can certainly call Henry Ford that, but not Walt Disney. No. No. So
1: well, we're uh, up against our last break here and we're going to take a, a listen to Sage Software, but before that, we want to remind you that you can email us at tsoe at verisage.com Also, uh, for show notes, please visit verisage.com slash tsoe and hint, hint, wink, wink uh, Ron and I are working on something special that we hope to release uh, to all of you next week. There might be a, a new website in our future so but uh, it's not ready yet, so we're just, uh, we're just setting you up for that, but right now, we want to hear a little bit from my employer, Sage Software.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America.
3: Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit BelieveInYourNumbers.com today.
0: Have you ever read a book that changed your life? From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
3: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V E R A -S S A G E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
2: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here doing Entrepreneur Heaven, where we're talking about four different entrepreneurs, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Walt Disney, and and Marriott. And we would like to remind you that it would be great if you could please post an iTunes review on the show we know many of you listen on demand and what would it really helps our rankings and all sorts of different things if you can put a customer review up there and then also to remind you that we do post show notes usually on the weekend uh, after the show and you can find those at com slash tsoe and on this particular show i'm going to put up some books on each one of these guys that that i would highly recommend and along with my um three-part article on earning my mouse here. So my whole experience at Disney university, and I think you'll find that um, pretty valuable at one of the books I really like about Walt Disney, and there's so many out there, but it's by a guy named Pat Williams and he talks and it talks about how to be like Walt. And he gives like, I don't know, 15 lessons or 17 lessons. I'm not going to go through them, but (laughs) he he quotes a scholar in there. It's a Disney historian, actually. And and he asked this Disney historian, what do you think made Walt Disney so successful? And the guy listed six traits. And and I think if you think about these, they apply to all of these guys. They had just an unbelievable curiosity about things. They constantly uh, strove for knowledge. So they were willing to experiment. And they viewed quality. I mean, they were fanatical. Um, i don 't want to say perfectionist, but they really did believe in high levels of quality like customer service and and all of that and uh they they uh, believed in control they believed in hiring good people and giving them enough control to set them free to do what they wanted, and they all had incredible visions. in fact, Walt had a great line something about if if everybody on my management team likes my idea it 's not bold enough. <laughs> it worried him when when everybody agreed with him sure because he wanted to push the envelope and make people squirm and Disneyland made people squirm. Everybody told him he would go broke. I mean, he talked to different theme park operators from around the world and he gave them their, he he, he told them his vision of a clean park and, you know, we would, uh, you know, wash the restrooms regularly and pick up all the trash. And they said, you'll go broke. That costs money. You don't hire good people. You don't, you don't spend all this time on training. You just hire people to work really hard and that you can pay real low. And mm-hmm. everybody told him he'd go broke and he he wanted to prove them wrong. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Well, and uh, we've only got a few minutes left, but let's let's turn to the last gentleman on our list today, and that is Jay Willer Marriott. Uh, as you were saying during the break, and I think this is true from what I know know about about him. If there is a real saint among the group, it's this guy.
2: Yes, I. He was obviously Mormon. In fact, the Marriott chain for a long time refused to serve alcohol until I think his uh, kids convinced him sometime in the 50s or 60s, you know, Dad, we gotta, we, we got to get with the times here <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> to start serving alcohol. But one thing that I really admired uh, about J.W. Marriott, and Ed, the one of the best books on this guy, believe it or not, was one that you can – well, I don't think you can find it anymore in Marriott Hotels, but it used to be in the drawer – the yes. Canadian Bible and and it was the the J W uh, or the J Willard Marriott story by a guy named Robert O'Brien mm-hmm. and it is a fantastic book it really does do a just a great job documenting his life and i really enjoyed reading it but and it was from there that i learned that this all started f- uh, from a, a A&W root beer stand that he opened in 1927
1: yeah, I, you know, and I had I had kind of known that those two were related, but until I started doing the research for this, it, it never really fully connected that that was the starting point for for this. And uh, just another example of you know get, getting a foot in the door, uh, seeing seeing what was wrong in a particular industry, and then just expanding out uh, from there beyond just root beer stands, you know. <laughs>
2: Yeah, he opened up a bunch of these things, and it it wasn't until like 20 years later or 30 years later in 1957 that he actually got into hotels because for a while he was just doing food service. And by having these hot shops, they called them, these A&W root beer stands, sold burgers and that kind of thing, he had one next to an airfield somewhere in Washington. And he'd noticed that people came in and bought all this stuff to go. So he got really curious about this. Well, he found out that, yeah, the passengers were buying the, the food to go so they could eat on the plane. Well, then they got into flight catering. Mm-hmm. And that's how Marriott branched off into that. Now, the other thing about JW, the old man, was he was really a big believer in diversity. So he got the he got the company into a lot of different things. If, if you remember, they did theme parks. You know, yes. great, great, great America had a couple. Of things. In fact, one was down here by me, and uh, the, you know, they got into retirement communities, and they got into. They even started a cruise ship, which which bombed miserably. Um, but he 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 was a big believer in diversity. But I think his kid came in and kind of culled a lot of these lines and got them back to focus, so they wouldn't have to pay what Tim Williams calls that diversity tax.
1: Right, right. Well, but, you know, the, the thing is, though, is it's got to be that balance. I mean, the, the, there is, yes, you have a diversity tax when you get too far diverse, but, you know, the, the, the more the more failure, the more success, period, right? That goes back to the, the stuff on Edison and, and him having to think up, well, I, I failed
2: 999 times before I came up with tungsten, right? Right, right. And, and, you know, the, that's the other thing interesting about – I think another theme that runs through all these great entrepreneurs, not just these four guys, but any other group we could talk about, was one of their secrets to success was they didn't set out to make money. They wanted to do something worthwhile, whether it was making great films or, or whatever. I mean, JW from Marriott, you know, was asked, did you ever – uh, set out to be a millionaire he said no he said i just wanted to render a friendly service to our guests mm-hmm. you know he thought it was really important when people were away from their home and they checked into a hotel that you you treat them like they're you know a guest in your household and, and not just that doesn't just mean a comfortable bed and good food but just all the little things too and mm-hmm. he was fanatical about that so he really understood the customer experience and you really listen to the customer
1: Oh, but and he understood that it was that it was really that who delivers that customer experience, but his employees. I mean, he. Uh, this was a a quote from his son Bill Jr., who said, in establishing the culture of the company, there was a lot of attention paid to the tender loving care of the hourly workers. Uh, when they were sick, we went to. He went to see them. When they were in trouble, he got them out of trouble. He created family and loyalty. And Marriott himself even said in a in a videotaped interview later, he said, "You've got to make your employees happy. If the employees are happy, they're going to make the customers happy."
2: Yeah, he did definitely have an employee first philosophy, and that ethic stayed with his his son that, that runs the company uh, to this day. I think, unless he's he's retired, I, I'm I'm not sure where the son is in the. I think he's or, still
1: currently the CEO. Is he still current? yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. I, I know for a long time, Ed, I followed his blog, and I was just so impressed because he was just himself on his blog. I mean, he would deal with controversial issues. Just, you know, it wasn't this sanitized PR speak that you get out of most CEOs. He was just a real human, and it was just great reading this guy's blog.
1: Yep. And and awesome pricers. <laughs>
2: Yes and of course in 1995 they acquired uh, Ritz-Carlton and uh, it was just such a perfect fit because the service ethic uh, has always been in Marriott and that's one of the things that really impressed me about all these these gentlemen they understood the value of a customer and they understood the lifetime value of a customer not just one transaction at a time and they all understood that and I think we've kind of lost that <laughs>
1: we have well, i think we for, we forget that the the word transaction trans means beyond right so it's beyond the action there is a value to this beyond just this action of exchange that's happening right it's it's again i think this is just another way of expressing that when properly done and as you and i both believe that mo- in most cases business is properly done both parties benefit both the customer benefits and the provider benefits because it is mu- it is it, it is it's a positive sum game
2: Right. You know, Walt Disney called it plussing, uh, giving the customers more than they paid for, more than they expect and more than you have to. Uh, there's a great story of him fighting with what he called his bean counters. They were saying, why, why are you spending three hundred fifty grand on this Christmas parade? It, it's not really drawing people to the park. We're not going to give any less people here. We could eliminate this expense. He said, no, he said, we have to give them more than they expect, because if they ever stop coming, it'll cost us ten times more to get them back. And, and they, you know, you talk about customer loyalty economics before it became a fad in business. These guys, all of these guys, understood it.
1: Oh, be, yes, they absolutely did, and they understood all of those things. You know, the, the, the employee satisfaction drives customer satisfaction, and customer satisfaction drives. Uh, well, I'm sorry, employee satisfaction drives customer
2: satisfaction, and customer satisfaction drives profit. Right right? Someday we'll have to have a discussion about the high satisfaction day that we think is really important to track uh, as as a reflection of of that, as a leading indicator of of all of that.
1: Absolutely. Well, here we are at the end, Ron. Another hour just flies by. Wow. That was great, though.
2: I I could talk about these guys forever. (laughs)
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. So what do we got next week? Uh, You know, it's really funny because it's uh, April 10th, so we're coming up to tax day. And folks, I want to Uh, have a discussion with ed about one of my all-time favorite books by a guy named charles adams for good and evil so taxes and how they've affected the course of civilization and so just in honor of uh, tax day on the 15th um, we know some of you out there are cpas um, we'll give you a a little historical perspective on how important taxes are and how they can be used for good and evil in civilizations uh, throughout history so that'll be a fun show ed
1: well, they they won't listen until after April 15th, so they'll they'll we'll get them on on the other side. But anyway, see you in 167 hours. All right. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, visit us at www.verisage.com slash T-S-O-E.